In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Colossians this morning. We finished chapter 1, and so that means we are in chapter 2 now. We're going to look at the first seven verses this morning. I'm titling this lesson, The Treasure of Treasures. Last week, if you remember, we talked about the awkward topic of suffering, which is always a hard topic to bring up. It's not necessarily something I like bringing up. It's not really what you want to bring up at a party, right? Talk about suffering, you're going to be the buzzkill of the party. But um, suffering is a part of the Christian life, and so we had to look at it and talk about it. The thing I love about the Word of God, though, is it's so complex. In one week, you're talking about suffering, and the next week, you're talking about treasures. And that's how complex our, our God is. And so we're going to look at treasures today. And as I do, typically, before we get into the scripture, I'd like to ask you guys a question and maybe even tell you a little bit of a story. Anyone ever had a fake or a false treasure of any kind? A fraud, a counterfeit, anything. There's fake treasures and there's poor man's treasures. And I want to give you an example of both from my life. When I was a young child, I enjoyed um, baseball and basketball cards. I enjoyed collecting them. And so that was a big passion of mine. I, I loved it ever since I was little. Um, so when I was little, I, I rode the bus to school. And on the bus to school, there was this kid on the bus. And his name was Mike Cherry, I believe. This kid was really into, I don't know, why do I remember that? It's just one of those things that sticks with you. I don't know. Mike Cherry, I think. Anyways, uh, he was also into ba- baseball and basketball cards. And I got to know that because he brought some of his cards with him to school. And, you know, I saw him looking at him on the bus one day. And I started, you know, talking to him and t- telling him about the cards that I collect and stuff like that. And, and Mike was showing me some of his cards that day. And I noticed in one of his, one of his cards was a Michael Jordan card. And it, it was autographed. And I always said, Mike, you have Michael Jordan's autograph? And he said, I have, I have a few of them. And I said, are you kidding me? How did you get Michael Jordan's autograph? And he goes, you know, I go to card shows and stuff like that. And, you know, I just stumbled across a couple of them. And I'm like, oh, my word. And so I said, you have more than one? He said, yeah, I have about three or four. I said, no kidding. I said, would you be willing to trade one to me? Because, like, Michael Jordan was my hero, you know, ever since I was little. I couldn't think of anything cooler than having a Michael Jordan autograph. And he said, yeah, I'll trade one to you if the price is right. And I said, well, what do you want? And he's like, you know, well, I don't know what it was back in the day, a Shaquille O'Neal rookie, and it was baseball and basketball, Mark McGuire, and a bunch of this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know, that's pretty steep, you know. He wanted a lot. But I was like, ah, it's a Michael Jordan autograph. How can I say no to that, right? So, so I traded for him. I traded probably six or seven really good cards to get this one card with the autograph of Michael Jordan on it. Later on, you know, a couple weeks later or whatever, I actually ended up going to this kid's house for a little bit, and he was showing me all of his cards, all of his collections. And he was showing me some more Michael Jordan autographs. I ended up with a second one somehow. So now I had two Michael Jordan autographs in my possession. And for that next week or so, I was on cloud nine, thinking I had the coolest possession you could ever have, a Michael Jordan autograph. Well, I, I, we were such big fans. We were actually, we knew the person of the, the card collecting store in town, the owner. And I wanted to show off my autograph. You know, I was like, I got to show this guy. So I went, to the, I went to the car dealership, and I showed the guy. I said, listen, I got something really cool to show you. And I brought out my Michael Jordan autographs. And on the card, it was funny. It had like a, it had like a little fraction on it, like 4 out of 50 and 15 out of 50. Like there were only 50 of these, and somehow I had two of them. And I was like showing this guy, going, look, look at my Michael Jordan autographs. And he goes, um, can I see those closer? closer? And he said, I said, yeah. I said, take a look. So he pulled them up to his face. 
And I said, what's, what's wrong? He goes, can I show you something? He went back in his little room back there and came out with this like Michael Jordan autograph that he had, but it was like in a case and it had like a letter of authentication next to it. Looked very official. And he goes, so he set his down and then he set mine down next to it. And he said, um, look at these two autographs. He goes, do they look similar to you at all? I said, no, not really. He goes, do you think that's a problematic? I said, well, maybe he was in a rush. You know, they sweat in basketball. Maybe he sweat and it blurred it. I don't know. You know, he goes, he goes, Todd, you have two Michael Jordan autographs out of 50. He goes, somehow there's 50 of these in the world and you ended up with two of them? And it's like, well, you know, I got it from a kid. And he goes, I said, what are you trying to tell me here today? He goes, he goes, they don't look like the real Michael Jordan autograph. He said, not only that, these two autographs don't even look like each other. And he said, I don't think you have a real Michael Jordan autograph. And I was like, what? Like, it never entered in my mind that there were fake autographs out there somewhere. And now I was angry. I was like, are you kidding me? And I, I went to that Mike Cherry and said, did you give me a fake Michael Jordan autograph? Two fake Michael Jordan autographs? I was really mad at the kid. And he goes, no, they're not fake. He goes, I don't sign cards or get fake cards. I said, the car dealership told me they were fake. He's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. He goes, I, I think they're real. And I'm like, well... From that point on, I realized no more trading with this kid. I didn't know if he wrote the, if he wrote the signature himself or if he was swindling me, but that was the end of my uh, dealership with that kid. But that was a fake treasure. I thought I had something really valuable and cool, and I didn't. It was a fraud, I think. I hope, because I threw them away. <laughs> Maybe somebody stumbled upon him and was like, no, this is real. Um, anyways, it was, to me, it was, just a, it was just a fraud at that moment. So that's an example of a false treasure. I have a couple examples of... Poor man's treasure, okay? Treasure that appears to be treasure until you find something a little better. And I'll give you examples, okay? Um, I worked at Best Buy when I was in my early 20s. And right around that time, they came out with something called high-def TV. Big time, right? High-def TV. Now it's like, it's everybody. Everybody has high-def TV. But back in the day, it was like, this is big stuff. So they, they turned on this high-def TV in the store. And I worked in the TV department, so I got to watch this thing. You know, they, they would put all these ads and sports highlights on it. And I was, like, mesmerized by this, going, wow, high def is amazing. And then I had to go home after my shift was done and turn on my just deaf TV. <laughs> Not high def. It was just deaf. And I was very disappointed by that, going, oh, you know, it's so hard to watch my regular deaf TV now that I've seen high def. You know, I couldn't wait back to go back to work so I could watch the high-def TV, which I think I was supposed to be working, not watching high-def TV, but I couldn't help it. It was so nice. Um, so that was an example of something that I thought, you know, TV, watching sports on TV is great until you saw high-def TV, and it's like I couldn't go back. I had to have high-def. We never. We didn't get it for a few years. I still blame my parents for that. But um, So high-def TV kind of changed my perception of TV watching from that point on. Here's another one that really only pertains to me, and maybe it does to you in the summer months. I told you I don't really like heat. I don't like being hot. Anyone else out there not a big fan of being hot? I'm glad there's a few. Yes, that makes me feel a lot better. Um, fans. Fans are great, aren't they? Fans are helpful. But when it gets really hot, you got to go to air conditioner, correct? Air conditioner is just so much better than a fan when it's really, truly hot. We understand that because we lost this air conditioner for a couple weeks and we brought the fans in hoping to help but but air conditioner is just so much better than fans well when we moved to michigan in one of our apartments it had this thing called central air anyone ever experienced that thing 
It's a beauty. <laughs> Central air is amazing. It's like the high-def version of air conditioning. Um, one of our apartments had, had central air, and I was just, I was like awestruck, because I'd never been in central air like that before. Everything was cool. And I went to the bathroom, and it was cool. I was like, Janine, the bathroom's cool. She's like, yay. And I was like, this is amazing. So central air changed my perception of air conditioning. But you know what's even better than central air? A cool fall breeze, isn't it? When you could turn off the air conditioner and open the windows, and if you're a fan of cold weather, bring that cool right inside from God's creation. It's so much better than even central air. So that's an example of something that just uh, is much better than its competitors. Here's another example. My dad and I uh, were sports fans uh, for a long time. Growing up, we would go to the occasional NBA game. You know, go down to Philadelphia, go to a Sixers game. But generally when we went, we, we sat in the nosebleeds. You guys know that, like, upper deck area. You can barely make out that it's a basketball game. And, you know, you're watching the teams play, and you're like, I think, I think the red team scored. Yeah, was that, was, that, was that Dwayne Wade? I don't know. Was that Dwayne Wade? It might have been. It was definitely one of the red guys. Um, but you're, you're sitting in the cheap seats and the nosebleeds. Well, then one time Dad and I, for whatever reason, decided we were going to splurge. And we were going to sit very, very close to the court. In fact, I think there were courtside seats. We were very close. They weren't like the ones right next to the court, but we were like one row back. And when we went to that game, it was like, it was amazing. I mean, we watched the Miami Heat play against the Philadelphia 76ers, and we saw Dwayne Wade. It was before LeBron got there. But we saw Dwayne Wade play, and he's like, he's like as close as I am to you right now. And it was amazing. For the first time, I was seeing Dwayne Wade in basketball like I'd never seen it before. And uh, like a, he could even sweat on me. How cool is that, right? Yeah, that's weird. Uh, <laughs> but as a kid, that's kind of cool. You're like, wow, I'm so close. But I saw Dwayne Wade and I saw basketball for the, for the first time I'd ever seen it before. It's like my eyes had been opened. And I could never go back to the cheap seats. We have, though. But uh, it's, it's much worse. Uh, a couple more illustrations here quickly. Um, who likes going to the beach? How many hot weather beach fans do we have out there? Yeah, several, including my parents. Very anxious to go to the beach. Well, when we generally went to the beach growing up, it was something like Ocean City, New Jersey, right? Anybody been to Ocean City? That's a, that's a pretty good beach. I wasn't a huge fan of the beach. I don't like crowds too much. I don't like, you know, I don't like the fact of sitting in the heat. And then while you're sitting in the heat, someone comes by and walks by and kicks sand in your face. That's not a great thing. And you eventually go into the water, and there's 100 people next to you and slapping you around. And <laughs> So the beach wasn't that great for me. But when Janine and I went on her honeymoon, we went to Jamaica. Jamaica was a much different beach experience. <laughs> we went to this beach called Montego Bay, and, uh, yeah, it was quite incredible. There were, like, four other people on the entire beach. The water was, like, clear. You know, usually it's like gray, and you don't know what's beneath you. You can't tell the difference between seaweed and a great white shark. <laughs> Both freak you out. Um, but in Jamaica, it was crystal clear. There was like nobody there, and I was like, I was like, Janine, this is a cool beach. Now this is a beach. This is something I could put up with. Um, so again, I mean, changed my perception of, of beaches forever. Uh, being at that. My last one is a little bit more romantic. Um, my dating experience growing up was uh, an adventure, to say the least. Didn't go great. I, I got married when I was 29 years old, so I had a lot of opportunities to date. And 
try to get married. It didn't work out real well. By the time I moved out to Michigan when I was 28 years old, I kind of told myself, you know what, it's not going real well. I'm kind of done with this. I, I, maybe I have the gift of singleness. Maybe I don't even need a wife. You know, it's, this experience hasn't been great for me, so I'm going to move to Michigan. I'm going to be totally devoted to the Lord. And perhaps I have the gift of singleness. And then I met Janine. And then I said, I don't think I have the gift of singleness. <laughs> because Janine was a much better experience than I had experienced up to that point. And obviously, it was, we, we got married. So um, changed my perception from that point on. I want to talk about treasures today, real treasures, okay? I want you to turn now to Colossians if you're not there, and we're going to look at the first seven verses. And I want you to listen to Paul's language, okay? Listen to his language and think about treasures. Paul says in verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. Verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I want to talk about the treasure of Christ Jesus today. I want to set our perspective on Jesus where maybe it hasn't been up to this point, that he is not only the treasure, but the treasure of treasures. All of these experiences I told you about, all of the highest view and aspects of everything I just told you. Jesus is that in all of spiritual, physical, mental, emotional life. And I want to find this from the text, and I want to break it down, what I believe is Paul is saying here. I think there's some out there who believe that Christians in this world have less and do less than the world gets to, right? Like, we're poor. We're poorer than the world. Well, Jesus said in in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So are we poor? In a way, yes, we are. When you walk and live the Christian life and follow Jesus Christ, you will be generally poor on earth. But are you really poor if you follow Christ? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I want to look at today that I don't think we're poor if we have the right perspective. I think we're incredibly rich. And this is what needs to change our mindset and our heart set to follow Jesus Christ. Right on your sheet there, Jesus said this concerning treasures. Listen to what he said there in Matthew 6. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wants us to have better treasures. Isn't that a cool thing to know? Jesus is looking out for our investment, our treasure attaining. He doesn't want us to have the poor man's treasure. He wants us to have the actual treasure. Because if we have the poor man's treasure, that stuff is temporary. And he says right at the end there, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. 
So if your treasure is the stuff of the earth, when it goes away, your heart goes with it. Sadly, all your joy goes away. But if you have treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal, your joy and your heart are also satisfied forever. Isn't that cool to know? We just need better treasures. Look at this quote from C.S. Lewis. I think this is really cool. Maybe you've heard this before, but he said, It would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't that a cool quote? We're far too easily pleased. A lot of people, like I asked you before, a lot of people like the idea of a beach. Go to the beach. It's beautiful, right? It's, it's serene. It's peaceful. It's like an oasis. The coolest thing is if people want to put their house right on the beach, right, to see the sunset and to see the beach. Here's the saddest thing about that, though, is they stop short of the one who created the beach, who created the sunset, that there's something in someone more beautiful than that. So people love the beach and love the beauty of the beach, and they should. It's a beautiful thing. But someone spoke that into existence. How much more beautiful is he? How much closer should you set yourself to him than you should to the beach? And I think that's kind of what C.S. Lewis is saying. We stop short of the greatest treasure sometimes. We're, we're satisfied with what the earth can give us. And I think we're going to look from today that Paul is going to take our attention and our focus to something much greater than the world can give us. Let's go to the text. Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I have a few blanks for you to fill in there on your paper as we go along. Paul's struggle. Paul says he has a struggle, a great struggle. He is struggling to encourage the Colossians, the Colossian church, and others to be knitted together in love. Knitted in love. Paul is struggling. He's praying. He's writing. He's using every trick in the book he can so that churches like the Colossians and other churches are knit together in love. Unified toward one goal. Why? Why is that necessary? He answers that. Because if we're all knitted together in love, if we're all together for the same goal, and that goal is this, to reach the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, we'll all be rich. We'll all have treasure forevermore. But we can't do it alone, it seems. Paul is struggling and praying that we're knitted together, that... Let's use this church as an example. There's a lot of ambitions we have, right? A lot of different desires and pleasures and hobbies and habits that we all have. And those things aren't sinful. But what if we all had the same one goal, all of us, to reach the fullest assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ? What if that was our goal, all of us, and we were knitted together in love for that one thing? It sounds from Paul's understanding, we'd get there. We'd get there. 
We'd have that assurance. We'd have that understanding. We would have so cemented in our mind the treasure of Christ, nothing else could satisfy us. Sad to say, myself included, I think we are satisfied sometimes by the earth stuff. It's fun. It's funny. It gives happiness. It gives joy. It's, it's just fun to do. And it gives it, is it sinful? We're not really talking about that. We're, ta- we're not talking about sinful things here. We're talking about treasures. Like my examples of, of you know, watching the game from the cheap seats versus courtside. And C.S. Lewis's quote about us being too easily pleased. Are we chasing the one true treasure? Think about that question. Are you chasing the one true treasure that when this earth passes away, and it will, your joy will be forevermore because you're rooted in the true treasure himself, which is Christ? And I often wonder, are we pulled in too many directions today? Too many things are pulling at our attention. Like this, love this, do this, spend your time doing this, spend your money doing this, 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 this. We've got thousands of things. And yet there's one great thing we should all be chasing. Greater knowledge and greater understanding and greater assurance of Christ. He is the treasure of treasures. How? How is Jesus the treasure of treasures? The next point on your sheet there. In the passage it says, all God's wisdom is in Christ. All of it. Everything God knows is in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you get Christ, you get all of God's wisdom. Imagine how valuable that would be if you could not only be the smartest man or woman in the world, but you have all of God's wisdom. You know what God knows. You think like God thinks. If you know Christ, you can get there. If you chase Christ, you can get there. All of God's wisdom, all of God's knowledge. It's just an amazing thing to know. That if we have Christ, we know everything. We can know everything. We can have the perfect perspective. That when the devil tries to tempt us like he did with Jesus in the wilderness, right? Jesus, you've been 40 days without bread, without food. Why don't you make those stones into bread and satisfy your physical needs? Jesus said something astonishing. Man doesn't live by bread alone. What? You're hungry. Yes, but that's not my greatest desire. My greatest desire isn't to fill my belly. My greatest desire is to do the will of God. That's much more rich. That's a greater treasure. Paul also says God's most profound mystery is Christ. Anyone like mysteries? Watching mysteries or reading mysteries? I do. I like those. Christ himself is a mystery. Okay, now we can know about Christ. We can experience Christ. But there's much about Christ you and I have yet to experience. A couple weeks ago, I likened it to understanding space. Remember that? Like, to understand space, how much time would you have to give yourself to? To understand the profoundness, the bigness of space would take a lot of time. It would take pretty much all of you if you really wanted to understand all the mysteries of space. But is that the biggest mystery? Is space God's biggest mystery? It seems like it to the scientists, right? Like if we learn space, we'll know everything. But we as Christians know, well, there's something bigger than space. What about eternity? You ever try to think about eternity? You go mad after a while. You can't do it, right? As soon as you try to think about eternity, you just have to stop because you're like, I don't know how to get there. 
I can't think about something that never ends. Everything I know ends. So is eternity the biggest mystery? I think there's something more profound than that. God's love. Isn't God's love profound and deep and vast? Maybe even more than eternity? Can you understand God's love? Can you fathom the love he has for you in Christ Jesus? If you will, though, I want, to, I want to suggest to you that there's even a greater mystery than all of those. The person of Jesus Christ. Because he embodies all of those mysteries. All of those mysteries are in Christ himself. So if you experience Christ, if you know Christ, you're going to learn the greatest mysteries of all of creation and heaven. Just by sitting before him. Just by learning from him. There's nothing deeper, nothing broader, nothing more vast, nothing more beautiful than the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the last thing Paul says. In Christ are all God's riches. All of them. Picture the, the most wealthy person in the world. Picture the kind of money and assets that person has. Obviously, that person would pale in comparison to what God has, right? Obviously. And yet, when you find Christ, you get it all. You get every ounce of God's riches through Christ's inheritance. It's all waiting for you. And it's like eternity. I can't think about how many riches that is, how much treasure that is. And I think even heaven itself is a creation, right? Jesus is more valuable than that. He created heaven. He created the earth. He created space. He created you and I. He created the complexities of our mind. Even scientists say that our minds are more complex than all of space. One human mind is more complex than all of space. Jesus created the mind. How much more complex and valuable and worthwhile is he? And this is what I think Paul is trying to get out from us today. I'd like to pause right now. Use your sheets. I know your sheets are printed weird, so see if you can follow along with me. Um, there's like an insert inside of that, and you'll have to find out how it goes. But I want to pause right now and talk about some of the world's greatest treasures. Okay, Some of the things that you and I can be tempted to chase while we're on earth. And I want to talk about them in comparison and contrast to Jesus Christ. The first one my mind went to was liberty. I think everyone wants liberty or freedom, right? It's increasing in this world. Everyone wants the freedom to make their own choices and decisions. Everyone wants the freedom and the knowledge to know that they are their kind of own master. They're kind of their own Lord. They're not really under anyone's rule. We have the freedom and liberty to live any way we please. A lot of people want that. But you and I know that a lot of those liberties that the world enjoys are sinful things, aren't they? The things that a lot of people call liberties are actually the most enslaving lifestyles. And think about it this way. If you gave yourself to a lot of the things that the world calls liberties, which are sinful things, many of them, those things lead to destruction. Now you tell me today, is living a lifestyle that leads to destruction freedom? Is that liberty? I think the world is looking for something found in the earth that is only found in Christ. Christ is liberty. Christ has true freedom. What we are searching for in liberty is actually found in Christ. So the world isn't trying to grab onto something bigger 
than Christians are. It's actually something much, much worse. The desire for liberty and freedom that everyone has is not found in sinful pleasure. That destroys the soul. The liberty is found in Christ Jesus himself. Following Jesus brings peace. It brings joy to the soul. And when you do it, it ends in eternal life. Is anything more liberating than that? Anything. To live for the reason you were created to live. It's natural. It's organic. It's perfect. It's righteous in God's eyes. And when you live that way, you go to eternal life in heaven. Do you really want the liberty of of man, the liberty of earth, versus Christ's liberty? I don't. When it's laid out that way, I mean, it's obvious, it's clear. Why would I ever chase the world's liberties when the liberty I find in Christ is so much better? But I think a lot of us are tempted to chase that liberty, that freedom, that feeling that we are our own master. The devil's lying to us. He's the master deceiver. In light of that, let's go to number two. Pleasure, generally. General pleasure. In the Garden of Eden, (laughs) Eve was convinced by the devil in the Garden of Eden that there was more pleasure in one piece of forbidden fruit than in all of the person of God himself. Isn't that impressive line? Eve, you're missing out. (laughs) God told you not to eat of this fruit in the midst of the garden? Do you know how much pleasure is probably in that fruit? And Eve was convinced. Yes, you're probably right, devil. There's probably so much pleasure in that piece of fruit. She took it and she ate of it. And she was convinced there's more pleasure in one of God's creations than in God himself. That what God was actually doing for Eve was withholding pleasure from her. Isn't that sad? And that's how masterful and creative the devil is. He convinces us that there's more pleasure in the stuff of this world than in Christ himself. Pleasure. Pleasure hits us at all different levels, doesn't it? There's pleasure in things we eat. There's pleasure in things we do. There's pleasure in things we can have. We're driven by pleasure. And yet the Lord wants something better for us. Pleasure forevermore. I thought about that in my own life. Like, what pleasures am I chasing? What pleasures get me to uh, fall away from Christ and start chasing the world? There's things. I know there's things in my life. In fact, for a long time in my life, I chased pleasure over Christ. I wanted the things that the world has instead of Christ. I thought that the world actually had more to offer me than Christ. That if I follow Jesus Christ, I'm going to lose out on pleasure. I'm going to miss out. God is going to give me a worse life by following Christ than I could if I had him. And that's just so sad to think. But think about it. Pleasure. Pleasure is is something that every single person wants. Gratification, satisfaction, instantly. I work with young adults for for the bulk of my ministry, and most of those guys, sadly, are into something called pornography. Because they want the pleasure of it. And they've been convinced by the devil that there's more pleasure in porn than there is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy to see, right? Because it gives you instant pleasure, instant gratification. It's kind of like the apple in the midst of the garden. 
that if you sink your teeth into this, you will find pleasure you can't even imagine. But as soon as you bite into that pleasure, you know what it does? It starts robbing from you. And the devil knows that. As soon as you bite into the forbidden fruit, it starts taking your treasure. It starts robbing from you. And the devil knew exactly what he was doing. Eve, bite into the pleasurable fruit. Because as soon as you do it, Eve, you're going to start to lose pleasure and treasure. And he's a master deceiver. And what I want to convince you of today is that there's more pleasure in following Christ. Of course there is. And yet I think we're all convinced that the today, you know, I don't know, I, I'll try to live for Christ, but it's hard, it's difficult, it's painful. I mean, even last topic, we, we looked at suffering. It's so difficult to follow Christ. Versus the world, you get a lot of instant pleasure. You get a lot of great things. When I started following Christ in my mid-20s, I started to notice something alarming, shocking. I was missing out on pleasure for the entirety of my life. I had more joy. I had more peace. I had more security in my mind and in my soul than I ever had dreamed that anything could give me. That's exactly what Christ is telling us today. That if you want pleasure, you're going to the wrong source if you're not going to Christ. It's not that he wants, wants you to miss out on pleasure. He wants you to grant you pleasures you've never experienced before, you never imagined before. And yet we have a master deceiver who's telling us to live for sinful, temporary pleasures. And as soon as we do, we invite the thief into our house and he ransacks us. And he takes from our soul, he takes from our security, he takes from our peace, he takes from our joy, and we are worse creatures at that point than when we live for Christ. And I want to heighten our view today of Christ. If you want pleasure, you want a good thing. If you want liberty, you want a good thing. But I think oftentimes our source is wrong. Where we're going to those things, for those things, are wrong. The next one is money. You live in America, you've kind of been taught by the media that money kind of rules the world. If you have money, you have everything. You have security, you have peace, you have power, influence. Maybe money's a better Lord. Maybe money has more to offer us than Jesus Christ. It seems like that those who have money today are very happy individuals. But Jesus taught us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We actually see from Scripture that money is a false god. Do you remember Elijah, the story of Elijah, where you know the, he told the people that if, if, if Baal was real, to sort of prove himself that day. And so they, they pulled out the altar and they were calling down to Baal, from Baal to you know put fire on the altar. And they waited and they waited and they waited and nothing happened. And Elijah kind of mocks them going, what's wrong? Is he asleep? Is Baal asleep? What's wrong with your God? And then it was God's turn. So Elijah douses the altar with water so it's saturated in water. And then he calls down from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it engulfs it in flames. Money's kind of like Baal. It promises us a lot of things that it can't deliver on. Power, security, influence. I don't think you'd be surprised by this, that a lot of people who have money are miserable creatures. Miserable individuals. But the thing that money promises to offer 
is found in Christ. The power, the influence, the joy, the happiness, the security. There is a source for that. It's just not money. And when the, when the Lord tells us, listen, I don't want you to serve money, he's actually looking out for us. He's not saying, hey, listen, I don't want you to have the pleasure and the power that money would give you. He's actually saying money will let you down. Those who have money and do not have Christ are the poorest souls imaginable. Because one day their money is going to be stripped from them and then they're penniless and then they're broke. All the security, all the influence that money supposedly gave them is now gone. Versus those who have Christ. Every single time you follow Christ, you invest. You gain. You get richer. And that's what Christ wants for us. Isn't that amazing? That Christ is actually looking out for our eternal investment. Don't invest on the earth. You'll become poorer. Invest in heaven. And you'll be rich forevermore. And sometimes we've been, we let the devil convince us that see, God is actually the one stealing from us. Right? He doesn't want us to have joy and power and security. What a cruel God that is. Why would he withhold that stuff from you? But the devil knows it's a lie. He doesn't, know, he doesn't actually believe his own lies. He knows that by chasing money and pleasure and liberty on this earth will become worse. And that's a dangerous lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that can lead to the eternal fire. But when you find Christ, you find all the pleasure and the liberty and the security that all of these things promise to offer. Keep going on here. The glory of man. If you've ever watched a sports game, you'll understand that we want man's glory, right? Anytime there's a tackle in a football game, the guy has to like pound his chest and play to the crowd, and the crowd has to cheer for him. The glory of man is something we all seem to want. Applause, recognition, someone to come up behind us and say, hey, fantastic job, you're amazing, you're doing wonderful things. And I think a lot of man's glory is selfish. There's a a motivation behind it. Versus the glory of God. Think about this, that man will applause you and praise you and do good things for you if they believe that you could do something great for them. But when God loved us, according to Romans, it was while we were still sinners. It says he died for the ungodly. Sinners. God loved us when we were the most miserable wretches we could have ever been. That's the kind of glory God wants us to have. Glory that doesn't fade. Glory that isn't based upon what you give to him. It's based upon his love for you. Peter tells us that the glory of man is like a fading flower. It's glorious in one season. And then the next season comes and it fades and withers and it's gone. And sports he teaches us that, right? I mean, sports, does anybody know who won the Super Bowl three years ago? I mean, that would take some thought, right? It's like, uh, I could probably think of it if I had to. But three years ago, there was a team on top that everybody was praising and saying they're the best. And now it's 2018, and nobody's talking about that team anymore. It's whoever won the latest. Whoever is now at the top. And that's kind of proving Peter's point. That whatever you get from man, it fades. After a season, it's gone and it withers and it goes away. Versus the glory of God, myriads and myriads of angels are singing about at this very moment. And it will never go away. 
And God wants us to have that kind of glory, the glory that can only come from God. And I think C.S. Lewis is right. I think we're too easily pleased. A pat on the back from man generally gets us through the week, right? If someone will praise me and talk highly about me and tell me how great I am, that will go a long way. And there's, there's time for encouragement. That's not to knock down encouragement. But if God is approved of your lifestyle and smiling at the way that you live and the smiling at the things that you do, wow, that's, that's way better, guys. It's way better. The glory of man. Lastly is the value and self-worth. Um, this is a struggle I see in young adults, but I think it's in all of us, is that there's a struggle for value and self-worth. And I think that's why social media is so big today. It gives us platforms to show people that we're, we're great and that we have good things going on so they can like us and comment and tell us how great we are. And I think there's something deep within us that desperately wants worth, wants someone to come up beside us and say, hey, you're valuable. Hey, you're amazing. And the devil has convinced us to seek that from man and not from God. That somehow man's exaltation for us is greater than God's approval of us. But remember those examples I told you of the things that I had experienced before I experienced something great? If you've ever experienced the glory and the self-worth that you get from man, and then you experience it what you get or what you're waiting for when God says, well done, good and faithful servant, I think what we have now is, is a cheap, poor man's treasure of that. Wanting value and self-worth is a good thing, but where we get it from is not a good thing. We need to get it from God himself. Jesus told us to not practice our righteousness before men, if you remember that. Don't practice your praying and your giving and all of this stuff in, in public because people will recognize you and praise you for that. And then Jesus says, when you do that, that's your reward. But he said, when you pray, go into your secret room and close your door and pray to your Father who sees in secret. And when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that God is only the one who's seen. And I have an example of that from my own life. I think my grandfather was one of those people. My grandfather didn't get a lot of applause, didn't get a lot of recognition, was not in the public eye. But from my, from my young childhood days, all I remember about my grandfather is that he served secretly faithfully, for years. And I don't think anybody knew. But you know who did know? God knew. And today I believe my, my grandfather is experiencing the value and self-worth that comes from a life rooted in Christ. Because man's applause and man's value is cheap. And it's short-lived. And God doesn't want anything cheap and short-lived for us, right? That's not how God designed us. We have a soul that is eternal, and that's enough to prove to you that the stuff of this world cannot satisfy you because your soul's eternal. You can't fit something temporary into an eternal soul and find fulfillment. You have to be satisfied from God himself. So wanting worth and wanting value is not a bad ambition. It's a good ambition. We just need to go higher to the source. Not go to man. Not go for man's applause and man's recognition. Live for Christ. And when it's time to do so, according to Peter and many other passages, he will exalt us. He will. And when God exalts you, it's permanent and eternal. And no one can ever shake it. No one can ever take it away. It will never fade like the seasons. 
you'll have it forevermore. When God says to you, well done. When God says to you, come into the kingdom I've prepared for you. When God says to you, I love you, child. You're mine. What the world has is a poor man's version of that. And God doesn't want it for us. Now I want to pause and I want to consider Jesus. We've got to move quickly here, but I want to consider Jesus. I put it right there in your sheet. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read it the way I wrote it, and I want you to consider the treasure of Jesus today, okay? Think about him. Jesus created you specially and uniquely. He gave you endless, faithful love. He, would, he withheld his anger from you from, by, by destroying you. Excuse me, he withheld his anger from destroying you once you rebelled. He revealed to you your sinfulness so you might search him out for salvation. He left his father and his throne in heaven to become like you in humility in order to forgive you, to save you, to restore your relationship with the Father, to teach you the way to live. Jesus raised you to life because you couldn't do it yourself. He gave you a soft heart because you wouldn't love him otherwise. Jesus indwelt you with his Holy Spirit so you could accomplish the will of God in a sin-stained world controlled by the devil. He created an eternal dwelling place for you, reserves a place for you, daily fights for you, protects you, is merciful toward you in spite of your sinful wanderings. Jesus sustains you with faithful provisions, both physically and spiritually. He grants you heavenly abilities in order to serve God with. He gives you a church so you don't have to run and labor alone. He gives you God's written word in your own language so you can have light in a dark world. He withholds the devil's desire to destroy you. He disciplines you when you're in sin so you don't follow it unto death. And he walks before you in the way you need to go so he can fellowship with you in your sufferings. Nothing or no one can come close to this kind of love, joy, satisfaction, power, and security. If you find Jesus, you find everything. He is the treasure of treasures and he's worthy of our love and our devotion. If you lined up anything that the world can give you next to that, doesn't it pale in comparison? Why are we chasing those things then? Why is it so easy to be tempted by those things? Pleasure that lasts for moments? Better than what Christ can offer you? It's poor man's treasure, and Christ doesn't want it for us. And Paul is struggling so that the Colossians know this. And the Colossians were a good church but they still don't quite grasp the treasure and the riches and the mystery of Christ. So quickly, where's our application? What do we do if we understand the treasure of Christ? Well, it comes from the text. The first one is being knit together in love with the church so we can understand him. If you and I want to go to greater understanding and assurance of this treasure, I need you and you need me. We got to get there together, which means we got to put some of those cheap ambitions off to the side and say they're not as good. Let's chase this treasure together. That's my goal as your pastor, is to get us all on the same page with the same goal, to chase the treasure of treasures, Christ Jesus. And if we're knit together in love with one common goal and theme, we'll get there. And when we get there, we're going to impact the world because they're going to see something otherworldly. They're not going to see a poor man's version of the world. I think several churches and Christian organizations today, it's kind of like we're trying to be like the world. See, we're kind of like you. 
We're kind of like your stuff. We're kind of have similar music and, and lighting and buildings, and we're kind of like you. But that's not what God wants for us. God wants better than what the world has. Not similar. He wants Christ for us. Christ. Next, be not deceived by plausible arguments that devalue him. When Satan tells you, I got better stuff. I got more stuff. You're missing out. God's cruel. He doesn't want you to have pleasure. How is that a good God? Be not deceived. Remember what you have in Christ. Remember. That's why we do communion, so we don't forget. We have to remember what Christ offers us versus what this world can offer us. Otherwise, we're going to be deceived. The devil has wonderful packaging. Even if his gift is deadly, he's going to pretty it up. It's going to look wonderful. It's going to look pleasing to the eye. Be not deceived by plausible arguments that devalue Jesus Christ. He says, be, be sure to, be, uh, to receive Christ and to walk in him. Verse 6 and 7. Receive Jesus and walk in Jesus. Rooted in Jesus and built up in Jesus. See, from the time I was young, and I think this was a lack of understanding on my part, I needed Jesus for salvation, and then I was good. Thanks for saving me, Jesus. I'll see you in heaven. Thanks for the wonderful gift. Paul says, no. Receive and walk in him. Rooted and built up in him. Don't leave Jesus. Once you come to him, once you experience him, stay Abide. Remain. Do not look elsewhere. Do not look to your left or to your right. It's all in Christ. And then he says, I want you to be established and firm in your faith in him. When you're established and firm, nothing can move you. Even when things try, you're established and you're firm. So when the plausible arguments and deceptions come to your mind, they don't work. Because you've experienced Christ. And you're like, I'm sorry, what you have to offer me is cheap. It's poor. I want Christ. And that's what Paul is praying, that we would be established and firm in our faith. And then the last one, which I think is helpful for us as well, abounding in thanksgiving towards Christ. If we're often thanking Christ, we're often aware of what he's given us, right? Which is good for us to remember. If we don't thank Christ, I think we become discontented souls, and those discontented souls start to chase things of this world. But when we're abounding in thanksgiving towards Christ, we're going, wait a minute, look at all he's given me. Look at all Christ has done for me. And it trains you to chase him alone. And I think that's good against the fight against sin. So quickly, I'll leave you with a few questions. I'm not going to linger here long, but I want you guys to answer these today. What do you need to do to change in your life so that you are treasuring Jesus in the way he deserves? Not know him, not be saved and stuff like that. I'm, I'm not talking about that primarily. If, you, if you're not saved today, we need to talk about that because you can't start this treasuring journey until you know Christ. But if you know Christ today, are you treasuring him on a day-to-day -day basis? Treasuring him. Not convinced, not guilt-ridden, not pressured to follow Christ. Are you treasuring Christ? When you treasure Christ, you're self-motivated. You wake up every day. You serve him in the mountaintops and in the valleys. You serve him faithfully for the course of your life because you believe he's treasure. 
Remember Moses? It says about Moses he left the riches of Egypt because he, he understood that there was more riches in the sufferings of Christ. So here's Egypt, the riches of Egypt, and Moses makes the calculation, I'd rather go with the people of God because the reproach of Christ is of more value than all of Egypt. Are you treasuring Jesus? Number two is how will you treasure Jesus? I'm going to throw three in there as well. Are there any weights or sins that are holding you down from treasuring Jesus? Because that's the devil's plan. All he needs to do is throw a bunch of pretty and cool and wonderful looking obstacles in your way. And we'll go, wow, that's kind of cool. Hey, look at that. Hey, that's kind of cool. How will you treasure Jesus more? What will you lay off so you can see him clearer? And lastly, what level of devotion and love is Christ worthy of? That's a high question to ask. What is he worthy on based on you treasuring him? I think for Paul, Christ was worthy of any amount of suffering. Any amount. If it meant severe, if it meant beatings, if it meant imprisonment, if it meant he had no friends, if it meant he had no money or no food, if it meant he died, Paul said, as long as I have Christ, I have it all. What is is Christ worthy of today? Think about your life. Think about what you live for. Think about the things that grab onto your attention and your focus throughout the week. And consider those things and place those things next to Jesus Christ. Calculate. Deliberate. Which one's more valuable? If Christ is more valuable, then you should make the obvious choice, like I should, to follow him because he is the treasure of treasures. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. It touched my soul this week, and I hope it's touched many souls here today. Um, We are too easily pleased. We're too easily satisfied with the things that the world can give us because they're not true treasures. Not really. Only Christ is the true treasure. And we've got to go deeper. We've got to go higher. We've got to train ourselves to think beyond what the world is putting in front of our eyes. We've got to be firm and established in our faith in Christ. If there's some here today who's never experienced the joy of Christ, let them come to that understanding today. That what the world has to offer us is not riches. It's not treasure. It's not righteousness. And if we follow, it will destroy us. But if we follow Christ, we will be joyful, secure, at peace forevermore. Thank you for the person of Christ. Thank you for this church. Guide and direct our vision to him today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.